In John 6, Jesus spends 45 verses talking about how he is the bread of life. It's pretty confusing, and no one really understands what he means. But then Jesus starts getting graphic, saying things like, My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Today's scripture begins right after this, when the large crowd of disciples react to this difficult teaching. John 6, 60-69 Many of his disciples who heard this said, This message is harsh. Who can hear it? Jesus knew that the disciples were grumbling about this, and he said to them, Does this offend you? What if you were to see the human one going up where he was before? The spirit is the one who gives life, and the flesh doesn't help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Yet some of you don't believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who wouldn't believe and the one who would betray him. He said, For this reason I said to you that none can come to me unless the Father enables them to do so. At this, many of his disciples turned away and no longer accompanied him. Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are God's holy one. This is the word of the Lord. Will you please pray with me? God of love and God of peace, we give thanks for your spirit that saturates our world and fills our lives. And we pray that by that spirit, we may hear your words for us today. Amen. Have y'all ever been in a situation where you say something and people don't react how you expect? So then you start explaining what you meant and it only makes it worse. And the confused look that you were getting starts turning into a concerned look. And then that concerned look freaks you out, so you try even harder to explain what you meant, and it just goes terribly. Well, we find Jesus in a somewhat similar situation today that ends in him telling a crowd of people that they need to eat him. It, yeah, that's what happens. It, it begins, actually, this whole story, in the beginning of John 6, starts with the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at last week. And after Jesus feeds this huge multitude of people, he gets really popular and starts wondering if people are only following him to get free bread. So he tells the crowd, after asking them this, that they only need the bread of heaven, which sounds great to the crowd. They're like, super, give us this heavenly bread. And that sounds good until Jesus explains that he is the bread of heaven, which doesn't sound so good. People don't get it. And it doesn't help when Jesus tells them to drink his blood and feed on his body. It's really weird. But it seems that this topic matters to Jesus. 
It's not a throwaway line or a detail tucked in another story. Jesus' teaching on how he is the edible bread of heaven is super long. In fact, there are seven books of the Bible that are shorter than Jesus' explanation about how he's the bread of heaven. Clearly, it matters to Jesus a lot. So, it probably hurts a lot when no one understands what he means. It probably hurts even more when everyone leaves him. This one speech causes Jesus to lose almost all of his disciples. A huge crowd was following Jesus everywhere he went. Just last week, he couldn't get away from them. And then they all just walk away. So Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and asks, Do you also want to leave? That question feels tender. It it feels vulnerable. Jesus feels vulnerable. Like he's asking his best friends if it's all over. His ministry, his mission, it, it all hangs in the balance as Jesus waits to see if he'll be a shepherd without any sheep. Peter breaks the silence. Lord, where would we go? Who would we follow? Now, Peter does not assure Jesus that he understands all this teaching he's just done. Peter doesn't even say that he'd like to stay. Peter begins with the honest truth that they have nowhere else to go. And I want to sit with that response for just a minute. Because the first time I read this scripture, it hit me hard. I was uh, was 21. I was living in Honduras in a a one-room house with 10 people. There was no electricity in the village, no running water in the home, and this was part of like like five months that I spent studying how the mainly the history of foreign intervention had had shaped Central America and resulted in acute poverty for the absolutely lovely family that welcomed me into their home for a month. So at the time, I was pretty messed up. In a a good way, I suppose. My ideas about the world and my place in it had come crashing down. The world felt irreparably wrong. And and I was trying to hang on to this belief that, that God could fix it. But it was tough. I mean, how in the world was I supposed to leave, believe that after 2,000 years of failed attempts, the gospel was suddenly going to kick into gear and affect and heal our broken world. All I knew is that I did not understand what was up with God. And, And that's where I was at when I encountered this passage that felt like just about the most honest thing I'd ever read in the Bible. 
Because Peter doesn't put a happy face on it and pretend like everything is growing, going great. The reason Peter sticks around is that he doesn't have any better options. He doesn't have anywhere to go. Peter already left his job to follow Jesus. Peter already left his life. Do y'all know that Peter is married? Or Peter was married? And we learn this in Luke 4, when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And that's all we know. So, I mean, it might be that after all that Peter has sacrificed, it's just too painful for him to walk away from Jesus. And and that sounds like a, a pretty bad reason to follow someone. It sounds like a terrible advertisement for the gospel. Follow Jesus, because let's be real, you don't have any better options. But I think there's actually a lot of deep wisdom in realizing that just because it's hard here doesn't mean it's better somewhere else. That's probably what connected with me as a disillusioned college kid, that I could be honest about the absurdity of life and that didn't have to like result in cynical disengagement. Sure, the world doesn't make sense. Sure, our spiritual quest for peace and justice and salvation, it, it might not be going the way we want. But what else are we going to do? Am I going to go find a, a different community of people who are earnestly working together to find joy and meaning and justice in the chaos and confusion of our world? But except for next time, that community will just be more effective or have more attractive people or have theology that answers all those deep questions. Or am I just looking for something new and different? so I can keep running from the pain. When things are hard in our life, it's it's normal and natural to look for something better. But sometimes better is just an illusion. Sometimes the spiritual path invites us to stop searching and face what is. I mean, and I, I think this is a a broad topic. I think it, it connects with jobs and relationships and, and honestly any area of our life where we spend a lot of energy trying to change the way things are. We want, to, we want things to be different so we can escape the pain, the uncertainty, or the disappointment of whatever situation we're in. But our spiritual growth often happens when we focus less on changing the world and instead ask, why am I so desperate for change? Why am I hurting? What am I afraid of? And what would it take 
for me to find peace inside myself. And, and I want to be clear. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I want to be clear. Don't stick around for everything. Like, sometimes you do have better options. Sometimes the path that you're walking down, you, you know it won't lead to life. And, and if that's the case, I'm not suggesting that you simply endure the suffering. I, I think I'm speaking more to, well, to a variety of things, but one of the things that, that connects with me is those, those disorienting times where things stop making sense, when things are no longer easy, when it feels like we need a change so we can find that passion again. It, it reminds me of a, a friend of mine who, uh, she's, uh, she grew up a Christian, grew up in the church, and you know, in her 20s she moved to New York and worked as an actor and, and kind of encountered Buddhism. And she was, she was increasingly drawn to this new, exciting faith. And so eventually she sat down with a monk, a Buddhist monk, who told her, there are many paths up the mountain. You've already made it a long way up a different path. Are you sure you want to start over at the beginning of this one? What he was saying is that the things that she sought were there in the Christian tradition she was leaving behind. And she ended up, what do you say, re-engaging Christianity, getting involved, and, and actually she's a pastor now. But her story is a little different than Peter's because she left and returned. But Peter stuck around. He trusted that there was more in store for him even if he didn't know what it was. Right after Peter tells Jesus he, he doesn't have any better options, he tells Jesus, and you have the words of eternal life. And I'm not sure that, that Peter knows what the words of eternal life are, but he knows Jesus has them. The, the stuff about eating Jesus' flesh, I, I do not think that Peter was like, ah, I, I got that. But he knows that leaving won't bring him any closer to finding what he's looking for. And eventually, because he sticks around, the words of eternal life will slowly unfold in his life. He'll be shaped and molded by a depth of relationship that can only be formed over years and years of loving companionship. And that's, I think that's why this story is particularly meaningful to me and why I returned to it 20 years after reading it for the first time. I, I mean, I believe that, that even if the current moment is discouraging and disorienting, we who can find words of life. I mean, and for me, it took me years. I struggled, actually, with that same question of, of what God was doing in the world. 
I struggled with my inability to transform the world. I struggled with faith until I found myself in a situation I simply could not change. And in the midst of my pain, I found that I wasn't actually in need of a God who would fix my life or take the pain away. I simply needed a God who would be by my side. I, I couldn't do it on my own. I, I needed something bigger than myself to face the pain. I, I needed divine accompaniment. I, I needed human accompaniment. I needed a community that knew me when I struggled to know myself. And, and the words of life that eventually became my own came because, I don't know, I, I stuck around when those words seemed impossibly elusive. And that's, that's my story, it's different than yours. But I share it because sometimes life can be really hard. I mean, honestly, I think this particular moment that we're going through is really hard. And as we try to engage our faith with, with what is going on in the world, it can be really disorienting. Sometimes it, it feels like the only reason that we stick around is because we don't have anything better to do. And, and in those moments, it's easy to feel like like there's something wrong with us. Like we're missing out on something that everybody else has. But I, I don't believe that's the case. I almost think the opposite. That, that these are the holiest moments of our lives. These sacred moments that that are not marked by emotional highs or spiritual certainty, but by a tender trust that, that God is still by our side despite all the evidence to the contrary. Because, you know, that, that's actually the, that's the promise embedded in God's own name. Emmanuel. That no matter how bleak or confusing life may be, God is by our side. Thanks be to God.